Welcome to Third Space, the podcast that aims to fill the yawning gap between the Christian church and secular culture. In particular, we're looking at this global crisis that we find ourselves in and the implications we find for living in wartime. Well, I'm David Robertson, and last time we looked particularly at what it was like to live in wartime, and I had a lot to say, and my colleague here, Steve McAlpine, I'm not sure there's anything left to say, but Steve, where are you going to go with it this time? Well, uh, hi, Dave. Yes, I am Steve McAlpine, and in this episode, we're taking a look at love in wartime. So does a crisis bring us together? Uh, Does it make us more loving? It seems like only yesterday the tragedies of fire and flood in Australia did exactly that. People came together to help those who were suffering, and we see more compassionate then. Uh, Will that compassion, that love, hold up in the same way in a pandemic? Well, New York Times columnist and author David Brooks suggests maybe not. In an article entitled Pandemics Kill Compassion 2, Brooks points out that if history is anything to go by, this COVID-19 pandemic won't be the, I guess, the killer app that makes us love everyone. In fact, he provocatively says it might make us more brutal. Here's what he says about the history of pandemics in which some awful things were done to those who were suffering. Fear drives people in these moments, but so does shame, caused by the brutal things that have to be done to slow the spread of the disease. In all pandemics, people are forced to make the decisions that doctors in Italy now face, withholding care from some of those who are suffering and leaving them to their fate. Frank Snowden from Yale argues that pandemics hold up a mirror to society and force us to ask basic questions. What is possible imminent death trying to tell us? Where is God in all of this? What is our responsibility to one another? Steve, do you know, that's a harsh quote. I mean, it really is. Do you think that's right? I mean, do pandemics make us more brutal and less loving? Well, you know, if you want to add up the um, the stats there, it would say that you're hitting four out of uh, four, <laughs> as in they do make us more brutal. And here we are in another one. So is it a case more that as we read those things, there's a panic level that makes us do things that are extreme, that don't make us more brutal and less loving, but expose the fact that we might be quite brutal and less loving and less loving than we think we are in uh, other times. So I, I wondered, Dave, if it's more a case of exposing us in a panicky situation rather than making us something that we weren't beforehand. What, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, you could argue that it shows us in both the best and in the, in, in the worst of lights. Um, I'm just wondering about pandemics actually making us more. Maybe they do. Maybe we fear whether they just show what we are. Um, I mean, and also what I'm struggling with is this idea of what do we mean by loving? So, you know, everyone comes on and, and sings, all you need is love. And, you know, we hear about people clapping medics or um, we all love one another and the world will get through this together. And I'm kind of a little bit tired of the sort of virtue signaling there, but I also recognize that in God's common grace, there is compassion. Yeah. Look, I, I, I think that love idea, especially when we've got a love being, how do you understand love? Well, it's just love. Yeah. And you think, well, we're not well placed as a culture to figure that out. Uh, whether or not we're more brutal 
and less loving in a pandemic or whether it just exposes us is more along the lines of when I'm in a car and someone cuts in on me, I my reflex is who I am. And I think pandemics do that. Yeah. So, okay. But, you know, I want love to have some kind of content and meaning. I want mm. there to be love. What would be the telltale signs of love in the current setting? And are we really showing them? Well, that's interesting. Let's start with a little uh, jibe at some people in the church who said, we're going to do exactly what Jesus did, and that's, you know, touch everyone, no social distancing. And you think, that's perhaps not the most loving. That's kind of a little bit proud <laughs> and, and stupid because it's saying, don't give someone else this virus. It yeah. will be a very unloving thing to do. Yeah. Perhaps also, so there's that. And I think in the wider context, there's uh, when it's every person for themselves in the toilet Role aisle, what would it look like to be loving there? Um, and perhaps at home, uh, what will lo be uh, loving when I've got my kids and my spouse in the house and we're starting to go stir crazy? I, I don't know if you've got no kids at home at the moment, David, you've only got one other person who's going to drive you stir crazy or the other way around. You actually do have to think about what the other person wants, you know, do unto others as you'd have them do to you as well, and what Christ would want. I, I'm, I'm amused because you talk about this hugging thing. That's why us Scottish Presbyterians really come into play because we just don't do that anyway. So this is absolutely made. <laughs> why would you want to hug a Scottish Presbyterian? I mean, well, I think. <laughs> why do we want to hug anyone? Yeah, this is true. Uh, what, the other thing I think too is uh, if you're looking for definitions of love, you can't go past uh, 1 John 4. This is love. And yeah. you go, ta-da, here's love. And it goes, not that we love. God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Uh, there's the sense that God's love, we respond in a loving way towards something, someone who has loved us. And I think if our love is as response to a greater love, that's going to help us in the middle of this pandemic. Yeah, and I agree with that completely. So that, for example, the love of Christ is shown in that he came to serve us if we want to love other people. We seek to serve them. So I'm, I'm looking at a notice on my uh, elevator or what do you call it in Australia? Lift or whatever it lift, is. Yeah. Lift. Yeah. Lift. We call it lift as well. It's the Americans who call it elevator. I'm looking at a sign which says I'm at number such and such if I can help you. And I think that's the attitude we have. But I'm coming back to the comment from Frank Snowden and the earlier thing you said as well about pandemics holding the mirror up to us. Uh, I don't like mirrors. For obvious reasons. Yeah, I'm glad this is not video. Yeah. What are we seeing as we look in the mirror? Yeah, that's a, it's a really good question. So Frank Snowden in, from Yale, um, he he says it's about what is uh, imminent death, possible imminent death trying to tell us? Is there something when the mirror is held up to us and you don't have imminent death in, at 53 as you look at yourself in the mirror, you just have slow death because at 40 you look better than you do at 53, et cetera, et cetera. But if it's suddenly imminent, I think things like pandemics show the fear of death in us. Uh, they show that we are actually afraid of death, but we cover it up with white goods and holidays um, and, oh, it'll happen later. Uh, so I think that's the issue of death. So it's a good question to grapple with. Um, what do we see when we see death? Well, I think we see the, the, the grimacing skull behind the smiling face, I think. And where is God in all this? Now, that's going to be a really interesting question, don't you think, Dave, as we come out the other end of this? Yeah, I think so, because I, I think the idea of love and then saying, well, actually, love is in a person and that person is God and God is love. Not love is God. 
but God is love. I think that's that's actually a critical cultural thing that we face because people are walking around our culture going, well, love is love. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to a love rally or an anti-hate rally. It's usually full of hate. Um, I, I just wonder, push a little bit more on this. What do our responses so far say about how we're equipped to love others? I mean, that's a big question. Mm, that's a big question. Well, I mean, go back to Snowden. He says, what's our responsibility to one another? Yeah. And at the guts of it, uh, we don't have a culture that feels particularly responsible to other people unless it suits me. And I think part of that is foundational to other person-centeredness and love. And I don't think we're as well equipped in a culture that says, well, just you do you. So everyone did themselves at Bondi last weekend. Uh, but love would have said, stay away because it's not about me. I've got a responsibility to other people. And I think our self-love is being shown up in a context where we haven't uh, sort of exercised the, uh, you know, the done the bodybuilding work of building up uh, true love in the sense of responsibility. So I don't want to equate love and responsibility because it sounds too much like duty and sort of cheerless duty because there's something beautiful about love when it's shown. Um, but you know, I think that responsibility has to come into it. Yeah, yeah, but but wait a minute. I I, I think I want to equate love and duty a little bit. Oh, I'm not saying I, you don't. I'm just saying I, they're not. I, I exactly feel I have same. a duty to my wife. I, you know, I yeah. feel you know. I don't. It, it doesn't depend on me saying. Well, I feel like this today. You know. No, so I no. think that that it's the same with the. I have a duty to my community. If I love my community, I really I do have to take duty into account because it cannot rely on me getting up in the morning and feeling inclined in a particular way. I agree with that, and I, I don't want to break that nexus between duty and love. I don't want to say they're the same thing, but I think they hold themselves uh, like with gravity, like a planet, two planets holding each other together, and if you lose one, the other spins off and loses itself as well. So I think you see what you love by what you end up doing and putting your time and attention towards, and that's the betrayal of what you love in that sense. Yeah, I think so. But the other thing I think I want to say in terms of that love, and well, I want to ask you this as well, um, that love also requires, it's not just immediate, let me show you how I'm loving you. I think that's a mistake, but let me genuinely love you. And that includes taking a wider perspective and thinking as well, rather than just, well, I'm going to show you how loving I am. Do you see what I'm trying to get at? Oh, exactly. Look, I, I heard a beautiful story last night of a uh, Christian school where five of the teachers rallied around a young Muslim mum with two young children who had a double mastectomy, had just come out of hospital this week, and her husband had left her. And she said, I've never been cared for like this. And it brought tears to my eyes hearing, that's what love looks like. <laughs> that's what love looks like. What you said here is we take... Our, our defining quality of what love is from who God is. And then we see that reflected in his people. And a crisis like this gives us the opportunity not to kind of patronize people or to boast about ourselves, but it gives us the opportunity to demonstrate the love of God in a crisis situation. Agreed? I think we're going to, you say amen to that and we'll wind this up uh, in a couple of minutes. Amen. Okay, Steve, uh, I mean, it's been really important what we've been looking at. But going back to David Brooks in the New York Times, he makes the point at the end of his article that after the 1918 Spanish flu, which, by the way, should have been called the American flu because that's where it originated, but don't tell President Trump. Um, everyone pretty much shut up about it and very few plays and books were written about it. He says, 
Perhaps it's because people didn't like who they had become. What do you think about that? Hmm. Uh, yeah, look, I, I think that's a uh, critical comment in a, in a good way because I think David Brooks is a very uh, insightful man. But I'm, I'm going to push his comment there if I could be so humble <laughs> and say it's maybe not perhaps it's because people didn't like who they had become, but perhaps it's because people didn't like who they had been revealed to already be. So, and I've said this a few times about, you know, economically as well and uh, as far as uh, spiritually and sociologically, you can only take out of the bank what you've put in. You can't draw down on what is not there. And so you can't build, uh, you shouldn't build a boat for fair weather, you should build a boat for foul weather, all these metaphors. But what I'm basically saying is whatever isn't there won't magically appear. There's, there's always a scene in a Hollywood movie where some flaky guy who does the wrong thing all the time, suddenly in a crisis comes to the fore and man's up. Won't happen. <laughs> Just don't think that happens. Faced with our mortality and our fear, we will go back to what we know and we'll balk at the idea of putting ourselves in danger if that's our first reflex in every other situation. So I, I would say that it's more a case that, do you get what I'm saying at that point, Dave? That it, it, it feels like God could give us the strength to do whatever he requires us to. I'm not discounting that. But the idea of disciplining ourselves over the long haul has fallen off the radar. Yeah, and I think what you've got there, it's very simple. Um, it's Jesus talks about streams of living water flowing through you. And I think I used to dig ditches and uh, I, basically if the river doesn't flow, it goes stale. If you don't have an input, you can't have an output. And that's basically what you're saying. We need to be fed. We need to, if we're going to express the love of God, we need to know who God is. So ironically, our compassion will grow as we grow in our knowledge of God. Yeah, yeah. So pandemics don't kill compassion as much as they reveal how much compassion we already have, I would say. Yeah. The world will sing again. The bells will ring again. When lonely hearts are meeting, life begins anew. If you'd like to listen to another podcast, I would like to recommend, with all due respect, with Michael Jensen and Megan Powell Dutois. Less aggro, more conversation, they say. Is it even possible to have a deep discussion without it descending into chaos? Well, not according to me and Steve, but Michael and Megan show how it can be done. There's plenty of things they disagree on. Free will, feminism, where you should send your kids to school, and what type of church you should go to but there are also plenty of things they have in common. They want to talk about all these things with conviction, but they also want the conversation to be constructive. Why not tune in to find out if that's possible on eternitypodcast.com. Thanks for entering the third space with us today. Uh, coming up next episode, Worship in Wartime. Yeah, now that's going to be how we look at being the church in this current situation that we find ourselves in and there's a whole lot of stuff that's going to come in there so hopefully we'll get it done in the time but meanwhile i'm just going to say goodbye and goodbye from me and we'll see you next time third space is hosted by david robertson and steve McAlpine, and produced by janelle muller edited by peter laveron third space is part of the eternity podcast network an audio collection showcasing the seriously good news of faith today. Head to thirdspace.org.au where you'll find show notes and other stuff related to our episodes and 
don't forget to click onto our Facebook page to join into the debate. Although your dreams have gone, just smile and carry on. There must be a darkest hour before the dawn. The world will sing again, a song of spring again. Oh, there'll be happiness around the bend for you. And then the dreams you dreamed will all come true. Brought to you by the Eternity Podcast Network.